Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. I got super interested in this company, and I'll tell you why. We had on a previous guest, which you may remember, Evan Rabbits, who is from Strength and Democracy, and he went on and on about a technology that I had not heard of, and that's rare because I feel like I am a superhero for remembering all manner of social impact technology, and this one is pretty impressive. Maplight. Uh, maplight.org. And we have none other than Daniel Newman, the president and co-founder of Maplight with us to be, frankly, it's just to educate me. So Daniel, how's it going? Thanks for joining us. It's going great, George. Nice to be here. Well, I was super impressed first off by seeing that you have been fighting the good fight for 18 years. This was founded in 2005. That's a long time ago, and democracy and transparency I continually need effort, and that's what we seek to do. All right. First impossibly hard question. Democracy, better or worse than when you started? Well, it's definitely under more attack than ever before. I don't think that's a, that's a surprise to anyone who reads the news. We started out highlighting the influences of money on politics as one of the biggest threats to democracy, one of the threats to a government that actually works for the people. That mm. threat still exists. It's gotten even greater since we were founded, especially since the 2010 Supreme Court decision called Citizens United that made unlimited secret money possible in the country. And now there's even bigger threats to democracy, to elections, to the rule of law, but the, the problems of money and politics have not gone away. Yet, if we were writing a three-act play, that would be the villain, clearly. And I, I don't want to jump over the, the main point of here of Maplight, which has now become a provider of effective software solutions for state and local governments. So you've got like voter information, campaign finance, e-signature capabilities, data series, and other custom software. Maybe you can give me the elevator pitch on Maplight. Yeah, so, so George, we make technology to improve democracy. And we really focus on a lot on state and local governments because they are the front lines of actually providing transparency to candidate political spending, for example, and, and really so many important other functions. And for so long, the existing technology providers, for-profit companies, have been naturally focused on the bottom line. In fact, it's focusing on delivering products that are just good enough. And we really saw an opportunity to take databases of campaign finance that you can search for politicians, where they receive their campaign funds, uh, useful to journalists, individuals, nonprofits holding these members of Congress and local officials accountable, and to really make something that's much better, make, make it transparency for real so you can search for campaign contributions as easy as you search the web, not have to dig through old PDFs and paper forms like so many of these systems are. That's super interesting. Maybe we can pull that thread a bit more. Who is the you know most common user of the platform and to what end? So 
the the core users are the governments. Like for example, if you're running for office in the city of Denver, you have to file reports by law about where you receive your campaign contributions and how you spend your money. And that serves a, a core democratic principle of accountability and transparency. Now, the you file those forms through a software system that Maplate runs for the city and county of Denver. So city of Denver is our customer. We exist to serve them, uh, but they are certaining the broader public interest of all the campaigns that file these forms to make it easy and straightforward so we get accurate information. And very importantly, the news organizations and nonprofit groups and everyone else that looks at that information and they're a core benefit to our software. Gotcha. So if I am a nonprofit that is even remotely or adjacent to the decisions of a public official, this might be a tool to check out. Absolutely. And so, for example, eight or nine years ago, if you wanted to figure out how much a certain company or union or person contributed to California elected officials, you would go to the California Secretary of State website and you would have to download literally 200 separate spreadsheets. I mean, it could take you days just to download, find and download the spreadsheets and then try and combine them somehow and find out like how much is this person or entity giving. And it was pretty much impossible. That MapLite created software, which was then adopted by the California Secretary of State. Now, when you go to California Secretary of State Power Search, this is a tool that MapLite created. You just type in company name or donor name and instantly you get all of the information out there about how much they're giving to California politicians. I'll give you an example, there was, a, there was a California insurance commissioner a few years ago who claimed, I'm not taking any money from the insurance industry. And using tools like MapLite software, journalists found out that actually he was taking money from the industry, put pressure on him to renounce that, give the contributions back, say, we're going to be more, put pressure on and this person and future commissioners to be aligned with consumers and voters the way that they're supposed to be and not aligned with the industry. That's the power of having immediate transparency. Yeah. I mean, mold grows in the dark. I feel like that's the, the, the takeaway. And as a, as a California resident, I, I thank you for, for doing that. I feel like I should play around with that, get into my seedy local council elections and see what's really going on with the parks. Very interesting. I, want to turn to picking up the thread where we were talking with Evan Rabbits about the adventures in Boulder, where they have the first and only, as far as I understand, online petition for getting the petition passed to get an initiative on the ballot. Right. Online signature. Well, it's not signature collection. It's online validation that you can, that you as a voter, instead of signing a paper petition at the yes. supermarket, you can do this digitally online in a secure way. I don't know why it still blows my mind that there's only one. And also they didn't end up using what I understand is free software that you at MapLite have developed for running this e-signature solution to basically improve direct democracy. Yeah, so what we've done is uh, we created a free open source software for this kind of e-signatures as to encourage governments to make it easier to adopt. So it's an important policy decision for governments, like whether they adopt this or not, whether they allow e-petitioning. It's not a software system by itself cannot do this. Like it, it has to be a change in the law to allow digital petitioning. And so what we're doing is looking ahead and we know that some states and cities 
have talked about this, have interest in it, and they get hung up on the technology. It's going to be really expensive. The technology doesn't exist. So we've created open source software to make it dramatically decrease the cost for the implementation. It doesn't take over, take away all the objections because there's a lot of policy concerns that they might question, but it does make the technical implementation easier. I'm going to put a pin in that and challenge you a little bit for the the blockers, which I'm really curious about. I just want to make sure I understand this. So right now I'm in, I'm in California and I know there's a number of other states, 20 some odd that have this direct democracy of petitioning to get initiatives on the ballot, which then have to be voted in. But that process is actually very costly, as I understand it, because you have to, as you mentioned, get someone running around at a grocery store to say, all right, do you have the accessibility and mobility and privilege of being able to move around in these places and then sign this document in order to get something on that ballot? Absolutely. And so it is extremely costly. And and, in practice, in a state like California and most other states, the only effective way to do this is with paid signature gatherers because the, the number of signatures you need in a certain time frame is so great that there haven't really been successful all volunteer efforts. Although there have been efforts that include many volunteers. So the, the promise of digital signature gathering is you remove the money variable from the equation. So like right now, the things that like I might go and vote on in California in the next election, all these ballot measures were chosen for me by interest groups that have a lot of money to spend because otherwise they couldn't get it on the ballot. But gee, I have some questions that I'd like California to vote on. I have some proposed laws, but like myself and like all the people that aligned with maybe more democratic accountability for lawmakers, more transparency, like we would like to put some political reform measures on the ballot. But, you know, might not have the $5 million or $10 million that it takes to do that. And so the promise of digital petitioning is not just about political reform or any one issue, but it's to give the power of direct democracy back to what it was originally intended. It is a check that the people have on the legislature if the legislature is too captured by special interests. I mean, you look back just over 100 years ago to California when they instituted these direct democracy and made it possible. So the Southern Pacific Railroad controlled the entire state government. I mean, it was bought and paid for. They called it the octopus it owned, the newspapers it owned so much land. There was the the government of California would write checks from the government treasury directly to the, the corporation, essentially. Like it was, and there was rebelling against this and, and people mm. organizing against this. And this was designed as a check on those special interests. And I think we see now with paid signature gathering is it still puts this tool too much in the hands of the wealthiest special interests rather than what it should be, which is a tool that you need a lot of people and a lot of political organizing to make work, but you shouldn't have to get a lot of money as well. And you threw out quickly the cost of $5 million to $10 million to get a ballot initiative on there. So getting those signatures. Yeah, not the- including the campaign cost. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so turning back to the free technical solution, there was a concern, it seemed like, in the narrative of our, of our last interview when we were talking about it around security. And frankly, if I don't pay for it, I'm just sort of mock arguing here, but if I don't pay for this thing, if it's open source, can it be hacked? What do you say about the security concerns of your particular tool? 
Yeah, well, so there, there's a long discussion in computer science circles about open source and security. And the, the consensus from what I understand it is that open source actually makes things more secure because you have many eyes on it, many fewer bugs. I mean, we've seen over and over with, the, with election equipment, election machines, which is a completely different domain than what we do. These proprietary companies with closed source software, there's all sorts of bugs found and there's all sorts of security holes. If there's an open source system, you'd have, you'd have computer science professors, you'd have graduate students, you'd have nonprofit groups all looking at the code, making sure it was secure. And for something that's a part of public infrastructure, like elections or ballot measures, it's really important to have that transparency. And that's what we would bring. And then on just the voter level and potential for voter fraud, right? Could I just, hey, here's my address. You know, the old dead people are voting. How do you verify authenticity of of well, yeah, that's pretty straightforward. It matches it up to the voter file. And depending on the, the state or city, they get to choose how they want to validate. They can do it with the driver's license number. They could do it. We're a fan of you get a postcard in the mail. So you have to wait a couple of days. It's sent to your, your verified address in your voter file. So there's some authentication step. It's not something you can do only online. So it seems like there's a escalating level of security for at least that authentication layer that the user, the city, the yes. municipality could choose. That's right. Now, and what we're doing, to be clear, is putting a name on a petition. It is not electronic voting. And I, in fact, am not a fan of electronic voting for safety and transparency reasons. But when you put a ballot, when you sign a petition to be on the ballot, that is public record in most states, like who it is to sign the petitions. And then digitally, it works the same thing. So it's possible to generate a report from our system that shows all the citizens who signed to put this on the ballot. So that's a really effective guard against any kind of security problems, because if there's some kind of glitch and someone's name's on the list and they didn't really do it, like that is very easy to determine. And correct me if I'm wrong. I'm like going to my local Save Mart in the current system. I'm holding up a piece of paper and I'm asking for first name, last name, address, and a signature. Like what where what is the security level at present operating in these 20 some odd states? Well, there's supposed to be a, a comparison to mm -hmm. like like usually it's a representative random sample to to save the government's the time and cost of by, by validating every signature. So there's a random sample drawn and then they look up your name and address and your signature and does it match. Mm -hmm. So the only the only fingerprint here that would be different is is that signature essentially. That's right. And again, it's public information. So it's not like a big security issue the same way that like secret ballot electronic voting would be where there's no way to tie it back. So with, with petitions, it's all it's all out in the open who's doing it. And so there isn't really like so much security problems of verifying it. Yeah. I do feel like there is a hint of irony in you not being comfortable with digital voting for the actual piece, but I, I respect people that can draw lines that aren't perfectly straight. Yeah, and I don't think, you know, I, I think if voting was transparent and you know how everyone voted, it's a different situation. But we have a secret ballot for good reason. And with that secrecy means that there needs to be mm. a verifiable, auditable paper trail. It doesn't mean you couldn't use like Los Angeles to develop its own public oriented voting system, there's electronic terminals that fill out the ballot for you, but there's still paper trails that can be audited. And that's the kind of thing, you know, it's, it's just too important to be something that's obscured. 
It's oh, a transparency. Okay. That really, it's not the technology of the lack of technology. It's oh, like okay. The, it's the, the transparency, transparency of, that drives yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, okay. I could push harder, but that satisfies me. <laughs> I want to challenge you though on your you're pushing out in your assumption that like the technology is too expensive. Therefore municipalities and states don't want to switch to electronic oh, no. petitioning. Cause you have had your software out for yeah, at I least five years, right? I don't when did you come out with it? Yeah, we, we came out with it. I was a couple of years ago, about five years. Like, yeah. But I don't, at least 2018, I, right? Yeah the, yeah. the problem is not the too expensive is not the only barrier, yeah. but it's one of the barriers. And so as a, technology focused nonprofit, that is where we contribute. Like so many things about democracy, there are so many pieces that need to happen. We need to change the policies, but we also need to make sure the implementation is effective. Like let's talk about the California Secretary of State example I mentioned earlier. There have been good laws passed to make it transparent where politicians get their money. But if the only way to really access that information in practice is to download 200 separate spreadsheets and it takes you several days to answer one question, like that's an implementation problem that also needs to be solved. And so we're really focused with the software on the implementation piece, but that is not the, everything that needs to happen. Mm -hmm. It was something interesting to me because I know many nonprofits, C3s and, you know, C4s do partake in lobbying efforts. They are trying to change the way local government operates in the way that helps their public interest cause. It's curious to me that removing this friction wouldn't be a super helpful step. And I am not that smart and I'm sure they have thought of it. And it seems like the sticking point is, let's say I'm a progressive organization being like, oh, if we could only get more ballot initiatives on for the arts or for, let's say, a woman's right to choose or access to fill in the blank, so too could my enemy or my, my counter on the other side easily get petitions passed and muck up the the ballot initiative. How much do you think that is this undercurrent of friction for the adoption of digital petition solutions? So I think there's a there's a couple of points of friction. So first of all, the the interest groups that put put me measures on the ballot, overwhelmingly corporate influence, but also union groups that are a big player in many states. Like they are all nervous to change the system from how it is because the result would be uncertain. They don't know if it would give the other side an advantage or not. Uh, and right now, those groups do have the means to get their desired measures on the ballot. So that's one. Without a doubt, if you have money and power, the number one thing you want to do is not change the fact that you have the money and the power in the system. Like that Absolutely. is fine. What now, about for, that next layer? For, well, the, the other layer is the legislature. So that means mm. that city councils, state governments, I mean, generally do not like ballot initiatives in general because it is a separate power source than themselves. And that's just kind of inherent to the process. And so given that like the rules of ballot measures are set by legislatures typically, then, you know, and digital petitioning certainly would need to be passed by a law. I mean, it could be passed by a ballot measure, but like it was in, in Boulder, but uh, more typically it would be passed by the, the legislature. Then the legislature just does not want to do anything that gives more power to the business. No, system. see so previous that, conversation. When you have exactly. money and power, don't give up the money and power. That's, exactly. And so that's, okay. that's sort of a, you know, an, a, a, in, I don't even want to call it a, a trend. It's sort of just an inherent inherent structural we'll, issue. We'll call that, we'll category, category human. Yeah. 
So the final piece, though, the, the why wouldn't a handful of conservative or progressive groups that are all interested in this local body get together and move toward what Boulder did, which is get the petition for digital digitization of petitions, right? It's uh, yeah, it I seems mean, like it's there, but that's the final blocker. That is curious to me, and I haven't sorted it out. I don't know if I yeah how I feel. Well, you know, it's like so many public interest oriented things is that you have a lot of people, uh, citizens as a whole would benefit from it, but there's not like a small concentration of groups that it would highly benefit. And so it, there's not like an organized interest group fighting for digital petitions. And so that's a big reason it doesn't happen. The advantages. Yeah, you're right. The advantages aren't concentrated. And so therefore you're like, well, well wait a minute. Why do I want to make it easier for everybody? I, I understand the current rules and have been able thus far to play by them. And I don't want my enemy to have this weapon, even though I would also have this weapon. Unfortunately, it's not a weapon. It seems more of an improvement to direct democracy, which we'll, we'll go into your book in a second. But um, it seems like voter engagement and representative democracy kind of dies at the hands of this friction. I mean, it's, you know, it's an ongoing struggle between more power to the people versus more power to special interests. I'm all for power to the people as long as it's my people, Daniel. I only want my people to have the power. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't work like that, does it? You have written a, it's not a comic book, but it's not a book book. It's a super interesting take on, well, just the title of it is Unrig, How to Fix Our Broken Democracy. And it's like a graphic no novel that walks through various elements of how to improve democracy, including ranked choice voting from what I was looking at. And maybe you can tell us a bit about why you wrote it and the summary on it. Well, so much of the problems we see in our country and have seen for decades come out of the fact of problems with our democracy. The, the systems that are biased for who can vote, who can give money to politicians and whether it has to be transparent, how the how the districts are drawn. You mentioned ranked choice voting, how the votes are counted. So there's all these really rules that have boring names like like dis redistricting, for example, and gerrymandering. Gerrymandering. Who's Jerry? You know, it's all Who's these Jerry? like technical things that actually control what kind of government we have and whether the government responds to us as a people or they respond to special interests or they don't respond at all. And so I wrote this book on rig. It is, it's a nonfiction graphic novel. So it's told in comics. It's a fun book. And it explains all this. It's like voting and money in politics and the electoral college and all these things explain in a really um, sophisticated high level way. It's written for adults. Uh, but it, um, it's fun to read. The, the, there haven't been very many on-ramps if you want to fix our democracy. Like, what are the issues? How it works? So it really, it's like an easy on-ramp. The other thing it does is it's positive. Like, there's so many books about democracy. They're great books. And they're also very gloom and doom about all the problems with democracy. And that has a very important role to play. And I certainly talk about the problems in my book. But in addition, I've paired it with solutions. So... For example, gerrymandering. So that's the process of politicians choosing their own districts. So no matter how much voters organize, it's really hard to unseat them, even when the politician is not doing a good job. So the solution to that is called citizens redistricting commissions or independent redistricting commissions. And you get, you get a group of citizens together, like under the law, and they redraw the lines in a neutral, nonpartisan way. And it leads to more contradictions 
competition, more responsiveness to voters. So the great news is, is that uh, citizens of California passed a law like this. And now California has these non-gerrymandered districts. And I talk about other states as well. So there's these inspiring stories of individual people who've actually brought these changes about. And that's what Unrig provides in the book. Yeah, it can be really helpful and move away from this. It's broken and forever will be too. It has changed in these areas and this is how it happened. And, you know, I, I always think about the, like, it can't happen until it does. And then suddenly everyone can do it. The epic breaking of the four minute mile by Bannister, like no one thought it was possible. And then within yeah. literally one month, it was broken again. You're like, okay. It's yeah, back over a hundred years ago, you had put the, the, you go to vote and the ballots were printed by the political parties, if you can believe this. So you go and equivalent today, like there's a Republican party ballot and a Democratic party ballot and you pick which ballot and it, you know, like you couldn't cut it's really a fair ballot. Like it features both candidates equally. It's like, no, you know, the parties were controlling the system. Now, of course, every place in the U.S., the government prints the ballot and it's a fair ballot. So that seemed impossible 150 years ago, but that is the reality today. And there's so many other common sense reforms. Like I'm a fan of publicly funded elections where candidates can raise, receive money from the All right, government. Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to time you. Yeah. I want to see if you can do this <laughs> campaign finance. I think so many problems from campaign finance reform. Can you explain the problem and solution in 60 seconds for campaign finance reform? Yeah, absolutely. The problem is that if you want to run for office, the number one place to get money is from interest groups that want something from government. Once you get elected, you have to pay back those favors if you want to stay in office. The solution is instead of getting the money or campaign from special interest groups, you get it from the same people as the voters, which is the public. So, for example, in Seattle, every voter in Seattle gets $100 in democracy dollars. That's hmm. $25. That's $100 in coupons every voter gets in the mail. Candidates can go door to door, get these coupons, turn it into the Seattle government to get money for their campaigns. And you have people elected who are great community leaders who are don't have the means or the wish to raise money from special interest groups. They raise all the money they need from their constituents, and they're tied to the voters instead of special interests. Well, that was pretty good. I was I was expecting something more complex. That is quite quite simple. It's basically IOUs. It's as good as money. Here's <laughs> the IOU yeah. to go and, and elect by yeah. public. It's great. Everybody, you need votes and you have money. So make the money come from the same place as the votes so people yeah. don't have divided loyalties. Still doesn't solve the terribly open back door of getting as much money as I want as a special interest into the pockets of whoever I want in this country, but you can't solve all the problems all the times. All right. That book is Unrig. You can find it at unrigbook.com. I just want to make sure I give that a shout out because it was, I was surprised. It was not what I expected from, <laughs> from when you sent it to me. It's really cool. I'll definitely be ordering it. Okay. Are you ready for rapid fire? I'm ready. I hope I am as well. All righty, here we go. First question, what is one tech tool or website that you or your organization has started using in the last year? Inbox, when ready, it is a Chrome plugin for Google Workspace and Gmail. I love it. It hides your entire inbox unless you push a button to show it. So when you can go in, you can write a message without getting distracted by everything else you have to do. Inbox, when ready. What? is one tech issue you are battling with. So I think one of them is finding talented engineers who want to make a social impact. In fact, 
if folks listening to the show, if you are a talented software engineer and you want to be working for democracy, send us a note, maplight.org. What is coming in the next year that has you the most excited? I think it's more cities and states using Maplight's transparency software. We want to make that the standard for the whole country for transparency of where your politicians get their money. Talk about a mistake that you made earlier in your career that shapes the way you do things now. So I am, George, I'm characteristically optimistic, and I'm optimistic about how long things will take and how much they cost as well. I, that's led to some, some scenarios and planning that didn't work out as I had hoped, but there's been an easy solution that I've been using for the last 20 plus years, which is surround myself with people who are really good with the spreadsheets and the planning and the details. Do you believe nonprofits can successfully go out of business? Absolutely. I think sometimes that was with a merger. There was one fine merger recently, a group called the National Institute for Money and State Politics that collected mm, yeah. all the campaign finance data from all 50 states, merged with another great group called Center for Responsive Politics that did the same thing for the federal government. Now it's one organization called Open Secrets, and you can search both federal and state campaign finance together. Uh, we're big fans and users of Open Secrets. The reporting that comes out of there is top notch. Absolutely. All right. If I threw you in a hot tub time machine, don't ask why, back to the beginning of, let's say, 2005, when you were starting MapLight, what advice would you give yourself? I think it's always think of the larger network. Like none of us working on social impact and at nonprofits are doing this in isolation. We all only exist because there's a large network of people that want us to succeed. And just to, to always bring it back to that larger group of people in terms of communications and fundraising and who we serve. What is something that you think your organization should stop doing? I've been thinking for a long time, I'm questioning the business value of social media for organizations. And I know it's just been an assumption for years that like you have to do, you have to post regularly on Facebook. You have to post regularly on Twitter. Now X, you know, obviously some people are questioning that assumption. And I've certainly been questioning it. It's like, I, I'm, it takes for any nonprofit group, like they're limited resources and you can't do everything. And so I am questioning like, what does social media actually get us or any nonprofit group? If I were to give you a magic wand to wave across the industry, what would it do? It's really to have multi-year support from, from funders. And I think if you look at the anti-democracy forces that have been rolling back voting rights, making money in politics more opaque, they have been funded, groups that have been funded for years at a high level by funders who are very patient and they have really been getting results after 40 or 50 years. It will a lot. And so, so pro-democracy forces need to do the same. What advice would you give college graduates looking to enter the social impact sector? Pay attention to the financial elements for yourself. Like the more you can, you can afford to live on somewhat less money, it gives you more career options. The nonprofit space as entry level, unfortunately, like is often not the best paying field. So if you can figure out ways to get in the door and you prove yourself, it can provide a really good opportunity to move up. What advice did your parents give you that you either followed or didn't? I take a real problem-solving approach to things and don't look at it in an ideological, ideological way, but think about like where you can actually fix the problem. What's your favorite question to ask people? What's your vision for a positive future? All right, Daniel, thank you for the time. Final question. How do people find you? How do people help you? 
I say you can find us at maplight.org. You can drop me a note. I personally do read everything that, that comes in. And you can check us out at unrigbook.com. And the thing you can do to help most of all is get involved with an organization fixing our democracy. Like Common Cause is a great group. They have chapters in many states, the League of Women Voters as well. And connect with a campaign or a group or a cause that's already going on that's focused on fixing our democracy. No better time than about to move into the election cycle engine that's going to tee up. So I think it'll be top of mind. I appreciate the work you're doing and the solutions that you're offering to fix democracy. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks, as always, to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 